the ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it is something that we make and could just as easily make differently. David Graeber Hello and welcome to The Mirror. I'm Justin Reed. How are you all going out there? It's a, it's a beautiful day here. It's oddly serene and still. It's like the earth has taken a, a deep breath out and, and closed its eyes for the moment. And I don't know, maybe it's just my mood and, you know, the way that you perceive your environment. But it feels like, I don't know, the world today is just giving me a moment of, of calm and to breathe. And it feels like a really good day to record this episode and and I hope that for you as well, that when you're hearing this, that it, there is a moment of of calm and, and uh, peacefulness that you're able to just take in and enjoy in some way. Um, but enough uh, esoteric uh, uh, waffling there. I'm, I'm here today to um, speak through the second part of our mini-series on dosing culture. So today I'm going to be reading the essay Dosing Culture Part 2 by Chris Crawford as published in Damage Magazine on September 9th, 2020. If you haven't listened to the first Dosing Culture episode, I would highly recommend going back and listening to that. It's the episode before this one or if you're finding this uh, maybe on YouTube or, or in coming across it in some other kind of random way. Um, I just think that that episode is, is, a, is a good way to start. I I don't necessarily think that they are completely, um, you know, you can read one without the other and you'd miss things, but I just think it's worth experiencing it in its totality and, you know, taking it in in full so that you can get the full yeah, experience of it and sort of build your understanding of it from there. So similar to the first episode, I'm going to read the, the essay in full and then give some thoughts about it at the end. This this might be a bit of a shorter episode than the last one or than most of the other episodes I do. I'm not really sure. I've written a bunch of notes on it, so we'll see. I, I often think when I have, when I feel like I have little to say or that maybe my thoughts are a bit shorter than usual, I end up usually speaking for an extra 10 to 20 minutes than I think anyway. So um, yeah, I, I'm not going to spend too much time at the front end here. I'm just going to get straight into it. So this is Dosing Culture Part 2, like I said, by Chris Crawford. And as I also mentioned in the first episode, this essay is an excerpt from a longer version to be published in Cured Quail Volume 2. Um, you can read it in full. I've put a link in the episode notes on the Damage, on the Damage Mag website. And I would really urge you to do that um, as well as listening to this or... Um, either or it doesn't matter, but I, I think regardless, it's absolutely worthwhile actually reading it and, and taking it in that way and giving, um, your attention to the work itself. So dosing culture part two by Chris Crawford. We begin with a quote by Wilfred Bion from learning from experience. Thoughts are a nuisance, said one of my patients. I don't want them. New conditions of production and reception. Like all other commodities, 
A change in function of cultural objects shapes the various modes of consumption. Culture is now something you microdose, like the new white-collar workers who take psychedelics to get through an overloaded work week. The tendency is to provoke addiction. You're meant to get a shot of it, to get it coursing through your system so that you can relax, focus, or simply feel anything at all. We use it to fill up the emptiness of time and existence, to help us turn off after the workday, or to get us through it in the first place. Dosing culture exposes a connection between needing to make sure the market, which is ultimately made up of our minds and emotional lives, is always ready for more, and the kinds and qualities of aesthetic products that are now prevalent. The function of the objects as attention commodities shapes the rest of their attributes. Huge swaths of culture today are just technologies organized around ceaseless, interminable addiction-like dosing. This goal exhausts both their form and content. Adorno long ago emphasized that quantity replaces quality as art is infused with the capitalist principle of exchange above all else. With dosing culture, the synthesis of the object with the exchange principle hits a new pitch. It becomes autonomous even from any immediate economic imperative. Things are made to become viral for their own sake, and virality is built into the way they are made. The objects challenge us not in terms of quality, that we rise to the task of meeting formal demands and layered meaning, but in terms of sheer quantity. They ask not what we can manage in experiential complexity, but simply whether we can keep up. Individual works are constructed to fit into a totality that we can never escape, and the totality begins to shape particulars to their core. Artists consider how to shape their content in such a way that it moves seamlessly from one platform to another. They work to make sure the hook in their song is short and powerful enough to transition between YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Television writers now construct whole scenes around gifable moments to be endlessly shared online. The platforms where circulation takes place are designed to trap us, to importune us, to constantly disturb us back into cross-eyed consumption. The shift from layered engagement to dissociative dosing, being a part of general tendencies within capitalism, has a material explanation. Today, artists sense that they should never make their content too filling or rich. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to keep consuming it. Amateur production rises in importance. Some people are now more likely to watch an hour-long stream on YouTube in which nothing happens or a podcast about nothing in particular than to read a novel or watch a film, which requires attention over time. This has given way to a new ideology of freedom within a total sphere of domination. Anyone can go viral at any moment. Anyone can break in simply by adding more content to the platform. The sense of openness hides the thoroughgoing conventionalism that is required in order to participate. Many people now profess that they are simply no longer able to read or watch a film in its entirety. So habituated are they to constantly taking in content in small doses. Capturing the meaning of a traditional work requires thinking back and forth between events and holding the parts in one's mind over time. This has grown increasingly difficult. Reading like this requires what Bloom called a capacity for irony, which, quote, demands a certain attention span and the ability to sustain antithetical ideas, even when they collide with one another. Strip irony away from reading and it loses at once all discipline and all surprise, end quote. Dosing culture rebels against this kind of engagement at the most basic building blocks of form.
Notions of Content The move from sublimation to dissociation culture has made its way into the language we use to describe artists, or in contemporary jargon, content creators. All mass culture since its inception has been mediated by the profit motive, and by extension, the division of labor, specialization, creation by committee, etc. Dosing culture today, though, often takes the form on the one hand of a platform-mediated patronage model, and on the other, an extension of advertising into everyday life in ever more nuanced ways. Ostensibly independent creators are no longer tied to a single firm, or even a single medium of expertise. They work independently, creating content for different platforms. They must create their own audience of followers first, before they will be taken up by larger concerns. The nexus of authority and control today is the total domination of consumption and production by the tyranny of the platform, and by extension, various forms of software and automation and the companies that own them. Influencers can modify their very existence, their personalities, their everyday life to an extreme degree. One follows them, only to be subjected to a vision of everyday life that is seemingly interspersed with advertisements for products to the point where the two become indistinguishable. Expertise is increasingly irrelevant, and technical skill is less important than being marketable as a personality. Content creators think of their tasks as inherently networked. One has to build a following at all costs so that your fans can be monetized. A content creator might start as a Twitter comedian, podcaster, or YouTube star, but eventually they get into writing, advertising, TV, major label music production. The very idea of creativity has changed. It has become serialized, repetitive, networked, and reduced to a total process. The shift to content creation fits the ideology of the post-industrialized networked regime of production, reception, and circulation. Regardless of an artist's movement between fields, this regime tries to hide the fact that what lies behind it is toil and precarity. One must never allow this fact to infect the products themselves, and some platforms even use algorithms to censor out negative content. This is perhaps also why contemporary culture is so infused with a constant swing from manic ecstasy to open-eyed nihilism, wearing its indifference to quality and significance on its face. The new idea of content might be illuminated through a comparison. German philosophy drew a distinction between two words for content in aesthetic theory, Inhalt and Gehalt. And this distinction touches on a key to the difference between culture as dosing versus sublimation. Content as Inhalt simply means what is being depicted or expressed. It is the information, subject matter, or piece of reality that we find represented in a work of art. Geholt, on the other hand, is content as import, meaning, or substance. Hegel points out the judgments of artistic quality or truth, if they are to be saved from tautology, must depend not only upon what is being expressed. For instance, X is a great work because it depicts God, heroic people, brave actions, the ideal form, etc. But whether or not the how of expression and form is correct for the what... This combination of the how with the what, whether harmonious, discordant, etc., is what Hegel refers to as Geholt. The way something is treated, displayed, and depicted is what results in its meaning, import, or aesthetic truth. This might sound so obvious as to be unworthy of comment, 
and it is true that these considerations were once tantamount to artistic initiative in its most minimal sense. Art was the result of whatever alchemy of form and content the artist could muster, whether applied from outside by rules or convention, or from inside the work itself and the needs of its autonomous development. This is what gave birth to meaning. Today, even this bar has become too high for large swaths of culture. It is important to consider these concepts now, only because works that are made with the idea of Geholt in mind allow for a kind of experience that is irreducible to the regime of endless dosing. The idea of experience that comes through a communion with the Geholt of a work is closely connected to another Enlightenment notion, that of communicable, universal experience expressed in a singular work. This is to be distinguished from networked, mandated sharing, which implies the standardization of that which is shared. Rather, the universal in the singular stands as proof that human beings are still willing and capable of expressing meaning through art that points, even negatively, to the possibility of a truly human world. We go out looking for such works because in the words of Emerson, they impress us with the conviction that one nature wrote and the same nature reads that in aesthetic experience there is a momentary cure for alienation. We read the verses of one of the great English poets, of Chaucer, of Marvell, of Dryden, with the most modern joy, with a pleasure, I mean, which is in great part caused by the abstraction of all time from their verses. There is some awe mixed with the joy of our surprise when this poet, who lived in some past world, two or three hundred years ago, says that which lies close to my own soul. The artist feels that the object is other to them, even as they have created it, that they have in some sense discovered something that was there and couldn't be any other way, that they follow the marble where it wants to go, to summarize a point made by Michelangelo. On the side of reception, this is the kind of object that has the capacity to move us in a way that is both socially shared and private. This idea of content as a dynamic relation between subject and form and the related ideas about artistic universality often lead to what are now politically incorrect questions about aesthetic quality. Comparing one work to another to arrive at a judgment of quality is now considered improper. We are uncomfortable with questions of quality in art and prefer that everyone be allowed to consume whatever they want. We rarely question whether or not what we say makes us happy actually does so, or what is gained in the process. But questions of artistic success, which are determined in part by whether or how a work or artist manages to speak to us from the past, have not gone away. The inhalt of Kafka's oeuvre, for example, cannot be separated from the depiction of the rise of cities and bureaucracies near the birth of modern capitalist life. But the Geholt of his work, the way he makes you feel terror at the fact that rational institutions, the family, work, bureaucracies, etc., prepare us for a life of desperate unfreedom, is something that opens up to us only through the way that he treats or expresses these themes, his method of generating shocks. It is now part of his work's truth content. Purgatory the cultural regime of the current moment is Kafkaesque only insofar as we experience it as a purgatory with no sense of time, development, or escape. In dosing culture, 
A creator's treatment of a subject, the way they choose to solve artistic problems, does not extend from reflection on the material and its potential at a given moment, but is determined by the platforms and geared towards imitation of trends. Works have become leveled, meme-like and oppressively monotonous. Our physical spaces have been infused with the same idiotic songs for decades now. The same cultural styles return again and again. Movies are in large part cannibalized versions of intellectual property, IP, or remakes that will continue to be remade year after year, decade after decade. Dosing culture requires this timeless, prepackaged content. It conjures the feeling of release as inseparable from addiction and dependency, as an endless flow of trash that we imbibe without ever reaching satisfaction and without ever going anywhere. The social media-induced delusion known as FOMO, fear of missing out, perfectly expresses this contradiction. No matter how rare we know authentic experience to be, how aware we are that our spheres of communication are composed of endless heaps of the same, with no way of escape and no real sense of satisfaction, we nevertheless cannot get rid of the belief that happiness is possible and that other people are having it. There is hope, but not for us. People are happy, we're sure of it. Only we never are. Culture atrophies not only from an internal law of exhaustion, a death drive of modernism, and not only because it is emptied out and reduced to exchange, but also because capitalist society has become a black hole. A snake eating its tail, a man-made catastrophe which lumbers on like a force of nature. Dosing culture's formal impoverishment is connected to contemporary life's general historical amnesia. It is culture that is built to step into the void of our own powerlessness over the course of the world. Culture in its domain is no longer the dream of something better, nor the illumination of the ugly truth of our contradictory nature. It is simply a sigh. Well, we have to have something. The connection between dosing and objective powerlessness, the sense of inevitability that typifies contemporary life, is perhaps most perfectly expressed in those areas that previously held at least some semblance of a relationship to reality. News media and journalism in general have become a non-stop parade of mania and psychosis. In many respects, these areas are now merely an extension of dosing platforms like Twitter. News cycles get shorter and shorter. The institutions of information not only endlessly propagandize, whipping up scandals out of thin air, but also block digestion through the psychotic way in which they communicate stories. The field that previously prided itself on objectively seeking out facts, despite its relationship to power, now barely even bothers itself with the pretense of being anything other than hysteria and elite opinionating. Whole staffs of reporters are gutted to fund overpaid op-ed writers with no expertise to speak of and underpaid writers churning out as much content as they can manage. Not only do major outlets manufacture consent in the straightforward way first outlined by Chomsky and Herman, basically repeating the narratives that have been provided by the state and powerful actors in the economy. This method was mostly a question of content, not style. Today, the manner in which information is communicated is equally important. The goal is not merely to report, but to do so in a way that drums up a daily moral panic that intentionally prevents reflection on the part of the audience. The very form the news takes is psychotic. It constantly shifts from one thing to another with no consistency at all. 
Each day's moral panic is treated as if the entire world hangs in the balance, and every outlet squeezes as much attention as they possibly can, until all of a sudden, the item is dropped as if it never happened. Near total amnesia is mixed with ceaseless anxiety. Nothing ever changes, nothing is improved, and the catastrophes keep piling up. The public sphere is now a mind-warping economy of takes, half-baked opinions to be used as battering sticks or projected onto others. That someone might actually have real knowledge, or that inquiry could be something undertaken in a collective, mutually beneficial way, are notions most would never even bother to entertain. The entire public sphere has been reduced to a giant comment section. The minute something is published, an army emerges to air grievances, often without having read the piece in question. In the sphere of psychotic reception, response is more important than understanding, and mania and hyperbole prevail here as well. You cannot simply disagree with something, rather you must protest against the very existence of the thing you disagree with, which is offensive, horrible, an act of violence. Emotion overtakes intellect almost as a rule, and the result is that no one ever learns anything. This not only results in a destruction of our capacity for thinking, but our ability to actually solve problems that are essential to our survival. Pseudo-democracy and the endless con. The final stage might already be on the horizon, as culture moves from being planned and organized by massive industries with gatekeepers who develop stables of content to a situation of total automation and algorithmic control. If Barton Fink satirizes the collapse of the artist into the hired lackey during the golden age of mass culture, the content creator signals the collapse of the hired employee into the endlessly hustling amateur, constantly hawking his wares through the algorithm. A recent signal of this shift was when Amazon decided to get into content by trying to crowdsource workable scripts for its new production wing, a plan that obviously ended in failure. But the idea is clear. We have moved from guys in suits hiring, developing, and marketing talent to guys in blue jeans and Patagonia vests who replace the costly middleman of artists and expertise with coders and feedback loops of makers and consumers. Neither side is allowed to outrun or outsmart the other because, at the end of the day, they are the same people. This final regime requires acclimating people not to expertly crafted kitsch, but to manifestly empty trash they nevertheless become addicted to insofar as the schema of their understanding, that mysterious process inside the mind which can't believed underpinned all experience is slowly replaced with elegant code. This combination of lowered standards and algorithmic logic is the idea behind one of the fastest growing dosing culture platforms, TikTok. TikTok capitalizes on the identity of maker and consumer and combines it with a near total conditioning of attention by the despotism of algorithmic management. When you join, its first goal is not only to get you addicted to consuming short bursts of content, it also has to prepare you to produce and share your own. This last bit is made more acceptable through the intervention of endless filters and ornaments that make you look like a less hideous version of yourself. The screen is constantly glowing and softening up faces, a technologically advanced version of the soft focus previously used in classical Hollywood movies. Consuming, producing and sharing become part of a single process. This circle of producer and fan is a stroke of late capitalist genius. 
TikTok has realized that the addictive chemicals released in the brain should be exploited on both sides of the cultural exchange, not only consuming images and signs, but also producing and sharing them, receiving recognition and a false sense of agency. This pseudo-democratic element has led to forms of grift that now seem to be endemic to human relationships under the current cultural regime. So-called stars of the platform make money through coaxing fans to give donations dressed up in little character icons. In exchange, the donor is promised shout-outs to grow their audience, future collaborations like give me $300 and we can sing a duet together, or just a fleeting moment of attention. This makes content creation synonymous with smarmy, fawning, shameless, and stupid behavior, and it reduces aesthetic reception to the most naked transactional relationship possible. It might seem absurd to compare a social media app that is openly marketed as empty, ceaseless consumption with higher notions of culture, but the contrast allows us to get some analytical distance from forms which have become so routinized as to feel like second nature. Their whole orientation is to make us feel like it cannot be any other way. If there is any light at the end of this tunnel, it might be contained in the openness with which this cultural regime acknowledges its own emptiness. As Gia Tolentino put in her review of TikTok, I found it both freeing and disturbing to spend time on a platform that didn't ask me to pretend that I was on the internet for a good reason. This might be true, but it is also difficult to imagine a lower bar for cultural criticism. There is no longer any attempt to hide the fact that the images and sounds we consume are an endless con, that it's all just garbage, that the commodities we constantly shoot ourselves up with to enrich our lives never deliver us from the gnawing sense of meaninglessness. The result is the thoroughgoing infection of cultural life with irony, even if the irony has also become so stultified that it no longer stings. The next generation of consumers is already upon us, and it is no surprise that many of them voice concerns about the anxiety they feel from tech addictions that make them feel hollow and bad. There is probably no other solution but to simply log off. We already know we are not missing anything. Perhaps we will eventually find the courage to know what we already know, to return to that most fundamental role of art, or as Robert Hullett Kento once put it, to consider how art allows reality to break in on the mind that masters it, perhaps one of our only methods of escape. So there we have it, the end of our mini dosing culture series. And uh, yeah, again, uh, like the first part, reading it, every time something new stands out to me and it's it's funny like thinking back on my life now and to put a uh, timestamp on it it's Thursday the 6th of May 2021 and I read this article initially in October 2020 so we're talking uh, seven months pretty much or six about six months since I read this and I mean, as time goes on, you kind of forget time that comes before it and you can't really hold all of your memories and experiences in your mind all the time. And once again, this is why I'm a big, uh, you know, believer in like keeping a journal or multiple journals in whatever way you can that suits you so that you're able to look back on things and gain some kind of, um, you know, insight and, and, and to reflect on where you've been and where you are now. But reading back over this now, it, it's funny how 
when I first read it, I felt this like deep um, emotional impact of it that it was just like my eyes were completely open reading, reading this essay. It was like, holy shit, like this is, this is why I feel so empty. This is why things feel so hopeless is because I'm going to these, these platforms. I'm, I'm living my life in this, I guess, like conveyor belt of, of consumption and trying to look for meaning within that consumption. And it's just not, it's just not possible that there is no meaning to be had there. Like they are inherently meaningless, uh, meaningless. And at this point, as uh, Chris Crawford says at the end there about like TikTok, it's like, we're not even pretending that there is meaning. They're not even trying to tell you that this is meaningful. It's just doing it for the sake of doing it. And it, it's interesting to think about it six months on now, six, seven months on now, as I, as I record this, that I, I do feel like a higher sense of meaning in my life. And I, and I do feel that while I still struggle with this, while I still have literally what feels like an addiction to the doses that the internet gives you, that the, the new form of culture gives you, that for the most part, I am very aware of what it is doing to me and I do my best to free myself from it. And, and that includes, you know, trying to limit my interaction and time spent on the internet, computers and phones, um, you know, spending most of my day not looking at a screen, trying to get work done and get ideas onto onto paper or to work on something in the morning or the or the middle part of the day before I go and interact with, you know, the culture in any way to to make it more difficult for myself to access these things, to not be on social media, to not have YouTube or Twitch and definitely not TikTok uh, around me, accessible to me, to be more, um, to be completely intentional in the way that I interact with things. I mean, I, I have been reading books again. I've just finished another book. I just finished another book yesterday, The The Man in the High Castle by Philip K. Dick. And I bought that book six years ago in, in well, five and a half years ago, 2015, I went and visited my family who were living in Perth at the time. And I bought this book and I just didn't even, I don't even think I read a page of it. And it's just sat there for ages. Like most of the books I have, I have many books that I've collected over the last 10 years, but have felt unable to read them because of this shift in the culture, because of this, these like this, these doses that we consume, it, it makes it a lot harder to sit down and actually give your attention to something. But now I am doing that and I'm finding a different kind of pleasure in it. And it's a, it's a pleasure of like feeling like I have my, my time back that, that, things are actually changing in my life, that there is some meaning to be gleaned there because I am actually formulating my own ideas and opinions. And as Chris Crawford talks about in in his essay, you're not supposed to do that. That's not the point of all of this. You're not supposed to learn anything. Nothing is supposed to change. Matt Chrisman likes to um, talk about a lot of the, the, the discourse that happens on the internet are arguments that exist to be had, not that are actually talking about anything that is materially important. And I, if I had to prescribe some kind of name to, you know, what I believe in terms of a, a, a system of uh, how I look at the world and how I, how I condense its organization into some kind of structure that, that makes sense to me, I would call myself a materialist. And that is not 
materialist in the sense that like I love shiny flashy things and I want to have material things but that the world everything that happens in the world and, and our culture is based around a material reality that there are a certain amount of resources in the world and, and resources can be money capital you know uh, housing or, or the things that um, the the culture values and and that that determines how the world is organized and what basically who gets what you know politics politics is not about what team you're on politics is about who gets what when they get it and how they get it that is that is a really simple way to think about it and people want to complicate it with all these like again like arguments that have to be had when people want to talk about certain cultural issues and like all those things are important to a degree but they're just you're not getting anywhere you're not convincing people um, you're not changing anybody's mind and you're not changing your mind as well. And I'm not going to bring up any specific examples here because it doesn't matter. You know, it, it doesn't matter because what matters is who gets what and how and when they get it. That's what matters. And this entire regime, as Chris Crawford calls it, of dosing culture is basically to to make you imagine that it can't be any other way, that the way things are distributed now, that the way the world is organized, that's the way it is. And there is no other future. There is no other way you can imagine things to be. Why, why was there like, why when, when like, uh, the, the Renaissance happened and when, you know, modernism came into being like, why was there just this like influx of so much great art and so much great, um, thinking and philosophy and, and, and the birth of psychology as well, uh, with the dawn of modernism like why does why is that a thing and then what do we have now like we we don't have great art we don't have great artists we don't have great films like there are sure there are some in the mix there are there are some artists and 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 artworks doing great things but there are not entire movements in the way that there used to be before and that is because we are so again like we are so individualized we are so alienated from each other like that is a a key thing that he talks about in the in the essay is like we are just so alienated to other people that uh, and it's because we are essentially addicted to a drug we are essentially addicted to our phones addicted to these platforms and the way that they you know dish up the content to us that we don't care what the content is we don't care about the quality of it the conversation around you know what is good quality and what is meaningful it's it's not only is it not being had but you it is politically incorrect to to again quote chris crawford there that you can't have a conversation about is this good does this actually contribute to our society does this help us imagine better ways of being because i think it was in um uh, one of my episodes, I, I, I can't even keep track of what I'm recording anymore. It doesn't matter. You'll come across it at one point or another if you're listening to this project. But I think like the biggest crisis of our time is that no one can imagine anything else. Mark Fisher talks about this in his work, the idea of capitalist realism, that this is the only world that we can have and the only way it can be. And it's 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 interesting that I just read The Man in the High Castle, which is a a book about an alternate reality in which um, what if the Axis forces, the, the, the Nazis and Imperial Japan actually won World War II and basically like colonized America and Europe in their image 
what what would that world look like? And you think that that's going to be, you know, just the basis of it. And that seems like a pretty simple concept. But what Philip K. Dick is really doing, and I'm not going to give anything away here, but the 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 beauty of the book is that what Philip K. Dick is doing with it is actually showing us how we we create our own reality and we we um we just assume that things happen this way because we've learnt about it and we we never seem to question it. And I guess he's asking us to question what is our reality and like, okay, what if we did win the war? What does that mean? Like what is this world that we're living in? We take it for granted what is the status quo? Who does it serve? And how how are our how are we propagandized? How are our minds shaped by the culture around us? And and how do we just why do we just uh, accept this as you know the way it is? And why do we live our lives that way? Why why have in in my time you know why has the internet um, gone from this sort of magical wondrous um, black box that could be anything that could take you anywhere that you could escape into in some realm, but also that you could, um, you know, it, 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 it's a, it's a, this virtual reality of endless possibility. Why has it gone from that to this place where everyone just goes on the same three or four websites and everything looks the same and everything has the same function? I mean, I can remember when, God, this is, this is a weird feeling, but like I used to have Snapchat and used to use Snapchat and that feels like one of the more infantile of the social medias. Again, I'm not judging anyone for using it, but it just is like weird for me to conceive of a time where I had Snapchat. And I can remember like when they introduced, you know, their, their stories and then Instagram introduced stories. And there was like a discourse in the culture about like, Oh, they're stealing each other's ideas and stuff like that. And then, you know, TikTok kind of emerged and it was basically just like the worst parts of all of it. And no one ever sort of really stopped to question it or to kind of say like, well, I'm not going to participate in this because it's just trying to hijack me, um, hijack my emotions and, and keep me on the, on the site more. Everyone just bought into it. Now everyone does stories and everyone does reels and whatever, whatever the new, thing is and that's just where everyone focuses and because it is in the culture because it is one of the few things in front of us and it's easy it's very easy to get into and to you know spend time on it and just have these constant doses people place importance on that and it's like you know you've probably heard people say it or or think about it and maybe it's a joke but on some level it's true it's like if you're not on social media you're not real. You're not a real person. You're not important. And that extends also to your work, that if your work is not online in a digital sense, then people don't perceive it as important. It's not real. If I can't access it instantly, it's not important. It's not, it's not valid. You know, again, we're not talking about levels of quality here or talking about like that relationship between the inhalt and the gehalt, the, the content, the, what it is and the actual form of it and how those things marry together to create some kind of like universal sense of the artwork and the feeling. And I'm like pumping my fist a lot here. I must be very passionate about this. Um, obviously you can't see that, but I thought that was really funny that I'm just like, <laughs> like punctuating every point with a, like a fist pump. Um, 
you know, th- those conversations are over for the most part. And I, I didn't know that I was missing this. I, I knew that I have felt this, this gnawing feeling of meaninglessness as, uh, Chris Crawford describes that everything just feels horrible and nothing feels like anything is ever getting better. And it's just this, you know, one terrible thing after the next in the news and, you know, one shitty artwork after the next, but Hey, it's all we have. So when Zack Snyder releases the Snyder cut of justice league, we're all going to get up in arms about it, but we're all still going to watch it. We're all still going to talk about it, whether we love it and it's the best thing ever, or whether we think it's racist or misogynist and, and it needs to be purged from the internet. We're all going to spend our time talking about it. It's like, why? Like, why don't we stop and think about this? Why don't we, why don't we, um, why can't we acknowledge the fact? And, and, and David Graeber has this great quote that I'm going to maybe sort of butcher here, but he, he basically said like the, the, the great secret of our, of our world is that we made this world so we can make it differently. And that's the thing that we don't get to have when we are stuck in these endless cycles of dosing is that we just see what's in front of us and we just take that on. That is our entire being because these this imagery, these sounds, they become our reality. So we assume that the, the most um, important form of protest you could have in the world is to tweet at a company about how they gave you shitty service. Like uh, Matt Chrisman again calls Twitter the... Um, Twitter is the is the customer service line for the contemporary experience, except no one is at the other end listening to your call. It is just a place for people to air their grievances, to complain about things, to talk about how horrible everything is, but to not actually do anything about it. But the way that the the you know, you can, if you have a bit of a following and people validate you and you fire off a tweet about how awful Amazon is or how awful, um, you know, uh, superhero movies or whatever. And like, we're all kind of a part of this discourse is like, you feel like you're actually contributing something. You feel like you are actually doing activism or some kind of meaningful form of protest, but you're not like, you're not, it's a virtual, representation of maybe a real feeling but you're not actually dealing with the material world in any way and you know that's that's from the consumer side that's sort of like the the politics of it but like from the from the the art side of it like being an artist or or someone who is creative and, and has felt like the last god 10 years have just been this like slow descent into madness and misery and like not knowing what to do about it to come across this article and to come across the work of um you know lewis and louisa at the cinema cartography and and matt chrisman's kush vlogs uh, aside from his work with chapo trap house like well they are in in certain ways they are a part of this sort of dosing culture but they they are not interested in conforming to that they are interested in more in-depth like actually thinking and reflecting on these things and making work or or critically analyzing um the culture and 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 the work in the culture to maybe synthesize into again like a better a better future like a a different way to imagine the future and i think that that has like widened the aperture of my reality to the point where 
you know, I'm not spending my time just inundated with this shit anymore. I still have moments and sometimes you do need to just switch off and escape. But if it's every day, if it's every waking moment, if you never have a moment to sit down and think about these things, like, you know, I'm hyper aware of the fact that I'm sitting here creating a podcast, which is a, which is a easier thing to digest, which is a dose in and of itself. I'm aware of this, but sometimes it's like, this is for me, like this is challenging in a way It is not the most challenging thing I do, but to sit down by myself for an hour and to, you know, catalog my thoughts into some kind of coherent structure, or at least to feel like I am scratching at something that um, seems meaningful or worthwhile. I can delude myself that it's as important as, as some kind of art. And I'll be honest, I don't really regard this as art. I think it is a creative pursuit. Definitely. It is a, a worthwhile pursuit and something that I wouldn't do if I didn't think it was worthwhile. I'm not again, inherently judging podcasts and, and saying YouTube is the worst. Um, I mean, I'm happy to say that about Snapchat and TikTok. I think there is almost nothing to be gained there, but like there is some merit to these platforms, but you also need to imagine beyond them. Like you need, you need to imagine like actually putting time and effort into your craft and not just doing something because it will give you that reward because it will give you a sense of, um, you know, catharsis that someone will, someone will make you feel good by liking your stuff or by commenting and telling you you're great. Like you have to do it beyond that or you will continue to drive yourself insane. I mean, everyone has different tolerances, but for me, I can't, I only want to hear from people directly about my work. And I don't, I don't want people to be commenting and liking uh, things. Like I just want I just want the work to be out there and if it strikes something within someone like if it if it if it creates some kind of spark within them whether it's negative or positive or, or whatever I want I want to hear that from them I don't want to hear that filtered through this internet machine that is designed to bring you pleasure because the other side of that is like when when you don't get pleasure from the internet things can be incredibly painful because they are you know, if, if someone like it's, it's basically like being in a manipulative relationship, if an abusive relationship, if someone was giving you lots of love and showering praise upon you every single day, and then suddenly they just turn completely cold and stop talking to you and said, you're the worst person in the world. Like that would be more hurtful than if you just had a sort of, you know, reciprocal, respectful relationship where, life just goes on uh, as normal and there are peaks and there are valleys and you know you navigate those and 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 that's just how life is supposed to be that is a a natural thing it is not as chris crawford talks about manic uh, manic ecstasy and then you know wide-eyed nihilism like the that those extremes people talk about people talk about polarization of politics i mean it's more about polarization of emotion that that is the problem is that people are becoming psychotic you know like I felt like I was going down that that path like I was genuinely upset and losing my mind through things that were happening on social media that doesn't happen to me anymore I have a more consistent life experience and I can navigate problems in my life whether they be personal or creative and artistic 
you know, and, and, and I have a lot more time that I'm thinking about my work and developing my work. It's such a beautiful change, such a beautiful switch, I think, in, in my experience. And I'm, I'm very glad for that. Um, and, I, and I would just hope that other people, other artists, other people who are interested in creative work could escape this cycle as well. And I'm, and I'm not going to sit here and tell you what you have to do. I think that you know on some level, like Chris Crawford said at the end, there's probably no other solution but to simply log off. We already know we are not missing anything. Perhaps we will eventually find the courage to know what we already know to return to that most fundamental role of art. Does this mean delete everything on social media and never use it again? I mean, maybe. For me, there is some utility in it from a distance um, in certain platforms, but for the most part, there is no utility. There is no... In fact, it's not just that there is no good element, it's that there are actively bad elements that hurt me, that affect my life, that rearrange my psyche in damaging ways to my mental and physical health. Because I've kind of alluded to it before, but like I have neck and back injuries that I've um, sustained from being on a phone and being on a computer for many hours in a day. And I'm sure I'm not the only person. I've talked to my um, physiotherapist about this and, and, and they said that there is there are more people coming in with physical affli- afflictions from like basically repetitive strain injuries from sitting at a computer all day long, from being on their phone all day long. I've talked to my therapist about this and they said as well, there are more people coming in with mental and uh, psychological struggles because of the internet and because of these social media platforms and the, the misery and the sense of hopelessness that they engender in people. And I know this now. I can't avoid it. It is unavoidable. I could not go back to a world where I sit on Facebook all day, where I scroll through Instagram all day. And here's the, here's the catch. I've been off Facebook for, God, almost 12 months. I've been off Instagram for six, seven, eight, maybe nine months. I do log in a couple of, have logged in a couple of times to um, remove all of my content from it to prepare to, um, you know, continue to post, again, my doses, unfortunately, as someone trying to scrape a living out of some kind of artistic pursuit. Um, And, you know, that might change again in the future. I might just completely get rid of it. I'm not exactly sure, but for the most part to promote this project and anything that I'm doing, like it right now, I can't see another way. I don't have meaningful relationships with uh, galleries or or cinemas. I I don't have, like I am alienated in the way that most people are. And my entire network of people that I know is built around this online platform. And that's because that's the way things have gone over the last few years. It has been easier to have a digital relationship, a virtual simulated version of a relationship than an actual one in real life. So in, in the time that I am now transitioning away from that, I can't necessarily get rid of it completely because that is my only link. Well, I, I probably could and just start from scratch and just go out into the world and find people. But, um, it's not easy. Definitely not. And while it's there, I'm going to use it for a certain amount of time, but I can't wait to get to a point where it's just 
completely out of the picture, that I don't have anything to do with it because I've been pretty open about my ideas on social media is that like the technology underneath it has some good things to it, but it is completely owned and run by people with nefarious motives. And that's, so it's, it's irredeemable, at least in the current, you know, structure of society that we have. But I still get the sense that I want to check things, that I want to look at my phone, that I want to go on Instagram and just scroll it. But um, when those urges come, especially strongly, I will, what I will do is I will probably just log into Instagram and guess what? I'm on there for five minutes because I unfollowed everyone that I follow because I don't need to see all that stuff. I don't need to be inundated with other people's lives. The only people I really follow are like a couple of people close to me and people that I cannot contact any other way, that I have no other point of contact for them because that I met them while traveling or they live overseas or maybe there's like like 20 something people that I follow, which is nothing. And you go on there and you see it and you're like, yeah, this is, there's nothing here. I don't need to be on this. And I log out five minutes later. So it's not like I'm it's weird. It's like my relationship with the drug has changed, but the withdrawal symptoms are still there. The cravings are still there for the doses, but over time it is diminishing. I am definitely less, I would just say less psychotic, less manic. Like I'm not worried and and consuming things and feeling so helpless all the time. If I am on the internet, it does seem to be for a, a more practical purpose and not that everything has to be that way. Like you can have fun. God, if you want to go and play some video games or something like that, you know, chat to some people, get some things done. But yeah, my relationship with it has changed a lot and I'm glad for that. Even though I still have those struggles, I'm glad because I'm beginning to see other ways forward for my work. And I've talked about this and, you know, it, and it's kind of funny how I I read this article again this morning and I didn't realize that he talked about how like traditional art you know, is something that you need to give attention to. And I think that is where my interests lie. And they lay there initially with traditional forms of music, um, photography, filmmaking. And yeah, I am fairly experimental in some of my approaches here, but I'm really interested in, you know, doing something that is not just content, not, not just, um, amateur production for the for the market's own means not that's not just viral or digestible no gifable moments like something that to be i guess like to actually be transgressive and and cinema cartography talked about this recently is that you actually need to do things outside of this system is not to be a part of it like this idea of like the democratization of these platforms and their openness, like as Chris Crawford said, it hides the thoroughgoing conventionalism that is required in order to participate, to do something different than what's on these platforms is to be maybe not even just ignored, but to be removed from the platforms or to be kept out of the algorithm. And that is not a a, a reason to take up some kind of like social justice cause. That is a reason to, make art that exists beyond YouTube, beyond Instagram, beyond something that is just in a phone screen. Like how is it, how is it like transgressive or or authentic to wake up in the morning and go, oh, this is my latest 
Instagram photo. You know, it's like that is a thing now. People think about Instagram content, YouTube content, like they are tailored towards the the actual platform itself. And like the idea of content, like that I hate that so much. I hate the phrase content creator. All you are doing is just basically enriching enriching these 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 companies and making their giving their platforms power and it's not like i'm trying to say like boycott these platforms and then we'll have a better platform or whatever it's like make art that makes sense to you and then you can maybe figure out the way that it needs to be presented in the process i'm not going to give too much away here but i've in the last week i've had this major brainwave of how my work needs to be presented and i realized it's not it's not online at all. Like I, I don't think some of my work, I don't think will ever exist online. Think about that and think about what that means and think about how maybe that goes against your instincts. Because like I said, the new, the, the new consensus is that if your work is not online, if it's not in a digital format, it may as well not exist. And maybe that's the way people see it, but I don't believe that. It never used to be that way. This is only a recent invention. David Graeber said, we make the world so we can make it another way. And that's what I want to do. And all, all of this has come from, you know, this essay and again, cinema cartography and, and Matt Chrisman and like the, th- the thoughts and the psychology and the philosophy, the cultural analysis, the critical thinking has gotten me back to a point where I have a better relationship with art now where I actually experience things that sit with me for days and days later I have thoughts on them that I write down it is not this instant response it is actually about sitting and thinking and digesting something and I and and I think that's so important because without the the boredom that I have sort of uh made space for in my life, the dead time. I wouldn't have these ideas. My creativity wouldn't be manifesting. You wouldn't be hearing me on this podcast. It's just the truth that dead time, free time with no, no stimulus to reflect. And then when I am experiencing art to not be reading my book, but also have my phone next to me to watch a movie uninterrupted to not look at my phone for two three hours at a time that is so important and it's not that i i watch every every movie i watch i then sit down and and write 10 pages about it in my journal afterwards sometimes i do if there is a you know if there's a work of art that is particularly giving me some kind of feeling but otherwise sometimes it's days later that the feelings come or maybe i i experience something and it doesn't really bring me any sort of um sense of realization or there's nothing to be gleaned out of it you've got to fight that feeling sometimes too that you know experiencing art has to be productive that if i watch a movie then i have to turn that into a podcast that's just dosing culture again no it's to bring that universal feeling you know like to to find that universality of it to to like i guess like i was thinking about this as i was reading it but like i Last year, I bought the complete um, fiction of H.P. Lovecraft, which is something I've, he's, he's an author I've wanted to get into for ages and his body of work and, and his, you know, ideas and his, his, his writing and the stories he came up with have floated around my, 
my, I guess, life for the last five or six years in different ways because he keeps coming up from different avenues and different people seem to reference his work. And for someone who lived a relatively short life and, and has a, and, and isn't sort of a, a mainstream character, as it were, his work seems to have influenced so many other great works of art from, from not only like works of writing, you know, novelistic fiction, but also film, also theater, photography, like incomplete ideas of like psychology and philosophy as well. And in contemporary culture, like he was everywhere. So I I slowly have been reading through some of his work and because a lot of his stories are so short, I, I try not to read too many in quick succession. I don't just want to be smashing through it. I try and let the stories kind of you know, sit with me for a while and reading his work from the beginning, because the way the book is structured is it's chronological order from when he wrote it, when he wrote things, it's not um like that. That's how it's been curated. And that's really interesting to see the way that he was, you know, someone who lived a hundred years ago was working through his feelings of alienation and fear and anxiety at the modern world. And that that is an experience that I, I share with him, like regardless of time and place and, and sensibility of what he was going through and what, what he felt and, you know, whatever, whatever manifestations that that created out of him, whether they were, you know, sort of some of his more problematic ideas of racism or whether they were his like, you know, just sort of like deep, um, deep lamentations of like how horrifying everything is and how alone he felt. Like I just feel that universal universal like kinship to him like i feel like he's speaking about something that is relevant to me now even though the world that i'm in could not be more different physically um culturally like we just exist in such a different time but that you know that is the work of great art it transcends time it transcends space and geographical location you need that you need that as a person. You need that as an artist. Like we need it because it, again, it can help us imagine another way, another world. I can see in people's work that they create that, and it, and, it, and I have a tough time experiencing it, experiencing it like with online content because you can feel, you can see in people's expressions, the way they speak, the, the sort of, even the phrases and the patterns that they, that they, they speak, um, the people are just doing and saying things because they feel like they should or that it will bring them some success rather than like what, what they actually want to say or how they want to say it because they don't know because they are so alienated from their own sense of like art, artistic creation and cultural production and what it might actually feel and look like to create a kind of work that is genuinely authentic and as actually in the form that they want it to be instead it's just online content you know and I and I think about that a lot and I I try and feel like I I feel like I am fairly aware of my own shortcomings in this regard and I think about this with the podcast a lot is like is the mirror me just doing is it is it literally just me doing that am I just doing what I feel like I should do with a podcast but I don't I don't think so I genuinely believe that this is a project that is worthwhile to me and the way that I approach it absolutely speaks to that the way that it, it literally might be a month 
three months between when I record certain thoughts that I am changing over time and that is becoming a part of the process that I do not feel like I am appeasing any audience or appeasing anyone in what I am doing because I'm creating this before even having an audience. This is being made in advance of being heard that there is no audience for this yet. So it is taking a shape and a form that makes sense to me. And that to me lets me know that it's worth it, that this is worth doing. And if it stops feeling that way, if it stops feeling worth it, I will stop. And I have done that multiple times within this process that I have not recorded something because it feels like I was just going to do something for the sake of it. And I never want it to be that way. I never want anything that I create again to feel that way. And even if it is in a format, even if it is a video that lives on YouTube, even if it is a podcast that I did it for a reason and it felt like that was the right place for those things to go. It's another reason why I've built or have been building my you know own personal platform is because I don't care about everyone seeing it. It is not to appease people. It is not to get that sense of like um, approval or, or for anyone to make me feel good. It is, it is because I made these things because I wanted to. I was experimenting and exploring certain ideas, but they didn't feel like they needed to be um, presented in a special way. They could just exist on the internet, but if they're going to, then they need to exist somewhere that they can stand on their own, that they can actually, um, there is actually some kind of like attention and effort given to them by people that they are not just purely existing on YouTube and Instagram because that is the easiest way. And I guess all of that is to, to kind of summarize in that there are other ways for us to create. There are other ways for us to exist. It may feel hopeless, but like if you actually spend some time outside of these platforms, you'll be able to breathe and think again. And, and from that, you might actually be able to figure out, do you want to create things? Is that something that you have inside yourself? If not, there are other ways to live your life again. You don't have to be an artist. You don't have to create content. If you're just creating content because you feel like you want to express something and be creative, but then you're just creating this stuff for people's approval um, for the platform's approval to maybe get some kind of success from it and then that's not working out and that's making you miserable. Maybe that's more the actual stuff that you're doing and the way that you're doing it. The fact that you're doing it for other people as opposed to doing it because it feels like it needs to, that you are following the marble where it feels like it needs to go. And if you can get to that point where you realize, okay, I actually really need to create I need to create things then you are ready you're at the right point to actually create some art that has some meaning and then to present it in some meaningful ways and if you're looking for inspiration don't look for it on these platforms go to go to an art gallery go to a cinema and watch something actually challenging if you can't find it in a cinema find it online like find find Use the internet to find out, okay, what are some amazing works of art that I need to experience and then go experience them. Buy a photo book, buy a book, buy a art book and, and study it and, and enjoy it. 
you don't have to turn this into a chore. It's not about that. But if you're not turning your creative process into some kind of discipline, I would argue that either you're not ready to do it or it's not for you. And that's okay. You don't have to be an artist. Like I said, you don't have to create art. You don't have to create things. But if you're spending all your time feeling like you need to be creative and you're not doing it and you're just ingesting more content and then feeling like you should go down that rabbit hole and just create shitty product review videos or, or, or gaming let's plays or whatever it may be. And again, I'm not completely knocking those. I'm just saying like, if that's what you're doing, but it doesn't feel right, maybe you need to reassess again. And if you are genuinely unsure, log out of everything, delete the apps off your phone, YouTube included, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, all of them, get rid of all of them just for a month, one month. See what happens to your life. It might be intense. It might be drive you crazy. You might seek to fill that hole with something else. You might go to Reddit. You might, you know, find these other ways to spend your time on your phone and your internet looking for those doses. But after a time, if you can integrate some sense of like, again, dead time and not planning anything and not having any stimulus, then you will get to a point where you're just like, okay, I've been sitting here for so long with my thoughts. I need to do something with them. I need to write them in a journal. I need to speak them out loud. I need to turn them into a film, a painting, whatever it may be. You will get to that point and then you'll be like me who's, you know, stacking up all these podcast episodes and writing film scripts and finishing um, digital collages and painting and all of these different things, like honestly creating more artwork in a, in a six month span than I have in 10 years, sorry, not 10 years, like seven or eight years, like then you will start to feel like, Hey, I'm actually doing something. And then that momentum will continue to take you down a path where you are continuing to create things and continuing to explore. Like I'm always researching and I'm always interested in, in new artists and new ways to do things. But there are certain things that you have to realize like you you can't always be doing that at some point you have to stop and actually put pen to paper put paint on canvas you know go out and take some photographs and 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 then go from there actually synthesize the ideas and the learnings into the work and you'll get there you will get there if you just give yourself time and realize that if you just disconnect from these things, if you log off, you can actually start to feel like there is possibility and there is hope and there is time and there is a point to creating art as well. I think so many people feel like there is no point because the world is awful. Like, why would I make something? Shouldn't Why would I make something dark and, and potentially evil? <laughs> why wouldn't I just make something positive and happy about how great things are? Because that's delusion. That is pure delusion. If you know that things are awful and you feel like things are awful and you spend all your time lying to yourself and then you lie to other people and present yourself as this different person who feels and thinks differently, you are literally creating a shadow version of yourself, putting that out into the world and then people are going to engage with that. They're not going to engage with who they are. And it's not again that you need to be completely miserable all the time and tell everyone that everything is shit but channel that into your work and try and live a more 
comfortable and more accepting and uh, decent life where you look after yourself. And, and actually, if you look after yourself and make yourself feel all right and actually sustain yourself in different ways, whether it's through physical fitness and, and artistic practice and eating well and being social and hanging out with friends, all of these different things together, they will give you the platform and the time and the space to actually make art or you will be so actually fulfilled and feel like there is some possibility to life that you will take it in another direction. Like I said, maybe it's not art. Maybe it's just, I I can't tell you, I can't tell you what it is. Everyone is different and your circumstances are different, but we all have the ability to disconnect from these things and to maybe go and have some kind of better life. And I hope that for all of us, and I hope that this all made sense in the end. (laughs) I know I got kind of serious at the end there. It's just, it is odd today how still and serene it is. There is like usually so many like trucks driving around and machinery going on and dogs barking. And I just feel like today the world is calm and it's making me just continue (laughs) with with speaking, but I'm going to leave it there today. Um, Thank you very much for listening. I hope you got a lot from this little series and I really hope you go and actually read the articles on damagemag.com. They have some other really great work. I know that Sam Chris has some really good writing on there, Um, but these two articles uh, specifically um, really, really stood out to me as well. There's an article called, I think, Applied Roganism. It's really interesting. That's worth reading as well. Yeah, I hope you all have a great, great day, great um, evening, week, weekend, whatever you get up to. I hope that you're continuing to seek out what what works for you in this world and actually like feeling like you have some sense of place in it. Like I definitely feeling am feeling lately that I do have a place and I do have something of value to contribute. And but it, it starts with yourself. It starts with feeling valuable to yourself. So. Yeah, get in touch with yourself, log off the internet as always, and yeah, take care of yourself especially as well. And I'll chat to you again very soon. Cheers. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Mirror. The Mirror seeks to provoke questions around the way we create and experience art. And it's my sincere hope that in some way it helps you in your own creative practice and perhaps your life beyond. If this project reaches you in some way, helps you reflect or reframe, or indeed provokes any kind of feelings within you, I'd love to hear from you about it via the contact form on my website. I really appreciate your engagement with The Mirror. You can support me and the work that I do by becoming a sustaining member for as little as $40 a year by signing up at justinreed.com.au slash support. You will help me continue to create exceptional work feel great about directly funding compelling art and you'll also receive a bunch of great benefits including access to exclusive films artworks and behind the scenes material on my membership platform that you can't experience anywhere else discounts on my online store and higher tier subscribers even get free access to all of my premium films before anyone else so become a sustaining member and sign up at justinreed.com.au support You can also support the show by subscribing to my YouTube channel 
and listening to full episodes of The Mirror there, complete with meditative, original visuals created just for this project. Our fantastic music is written, produced, and performed by Annalisa Vetrunio, with drums contributed by Giacomo Greco. All of these details and links are included in the episode description. And until next time, I hope you're out there creating great work on your terms. I'm Justin Reed, and you have been listening to The Mirror.